Well, it's always a great pleasure to be with you uh, to share God's Word on a Sunday evening. I wonder if you would turn with me to Book of Job, chapter 15. I'm going to give an overview, really, this evening of Job, chapter 15 through 17. But let's begin with a word of prayer. O oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do praise you because you are a great and a mighty God. You are transcendent. You are pure beyond our imaginings. There is no sin, there is no shadow within you. And yet, Lord, we know that you have condescended not only to reveal yourself to us, but also to send your own Son to become flesh and to die as a mediator, as a sacrifice for our sins and for our failings. Lord, as we reflect this evening upon this difficult book, We ask, O Lord, that you would take us from the pages of the book of Job to Calvary and to the empty tomb and indeed to the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus as he now sits at your right hand, that we might leave this place knowing him more fully and worshipping him in his glory more faithfully. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. If you'd turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 15. the speech of Eliphaz the Temanite. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the grey-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away, and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked with the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield, because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist, and has lived in desolate cities, in houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness, the flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, For emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. 
He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. For the company of the godless is barren and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil and their womb prepares deceit. Praise God for his holy and inerrant word. We reach the point in the book of Job now where we're into the second round of speeches. Uh, All of his comforters have spoken, and now they're all going to get a second bite of the cherry. They're all going to get an opportunity to speak again. And the bad news is that they have learned nothing in this process so far. What we get in round two of the speeches of Job's comforters is really more of the same of what we had in round one, only now with a harshness, an intensity that was perhaps somewhat ameliorated or mellowed in the first exchange. And one of the things I think that comes through very clearly in this second round of speeches is that the thing that makes Job's suffering particularly acute is not so much the material factors, agonizing as they are, the loss of children, the loss of property, the loss of bodily health. What makes Job's sufferings even worse is the isolation that we now see kicking in in Job's life. We got a hint of that early on when his wife was less than entirely sympathetic to him clinging to his God in the midst of his trauma. Now we will see with these next set of speeches that Job's friends are really distancing themselves from him, repeating that which they've said already, but raising the temperature dramatically. And loneliness, I think, has to be, well, just as a note, Pastor Pugliati asked me where I got the title Home Alone from. Uh, I think it happened to be some advert on the internet when I was uh, on Gmail to answer his reply, and it just seemed appropriate. So uh, it's the loneliness part of the title rather than the home part that I'm going to focus on this evening. Loneliness has to be, I think, one of the most acutely painful conditions for human beings. Loneliness is one of those things that makes material comfort less than satisfying and even perhaps bitter. I've said it before, it's very striking to me that uh, nearly 40 years ago when I was at college, I imagined there was a counselling centre, but nobody ever told me about it and I never went to visit it on my behalf or on behalf of somebody else. I'm told that at Grove City College, uh, well, we have to put information about the counselling centre on all of our syllabuses, and I'm told that upwards of 40% of the students will be connected to the counselling centre, either on their part or on the part of somebody else during their time. That's a remarkable statistic. When you think that actually, we probably have more material comfort and security today than we had 40 years ago. I went to school at a time when we used to have to do nuclear bomb drills in school in case the Russians or the Americans, we were never sure who it was going to be, decided that we were surplus to requirements. But it was a slightly more insecure age than we have today, but I don't remember the terrible levels of mental illness and distress. And it's not, I think, because people today are softer. I suspect it's because they're lonelier. One of my favorite movies of all time, it's an old one, anybody under the age of 40 has probably not seen it, but High Noon great Gary Cooper movie. I see one hand going up at the back. High Noon, a great Gary Cooper movie. 
The plot is this, Gary Cooper is uh, Marshal Will Kane, he's a sheriff in a western town and he gets news that some men that he put away for a crime are out of prison and they're coming to town in order to kill him. Uh, and he, for the first part of the movie, he does the rounds of all of his friends to see who will stand with him uh, to fight against these evil men, evil men that he saved his friends from in some earlier point not covered in the movie. And all of his friends either find an excuse not to help him or are mysteriously absent when he knocks on their door. And then there's this moment about halfway through the film when Cain realizes this and the camera pulls back. And you have one man standing in the middle of a town with nobody else there. And it's a powerful reflection of loneliness. Cain is completely alone at that point. That is really where we're getting to in the book of Job. As we move into chapter 15, I think what becomes clear is not so much the bad theology of his friends. We've seen that already and we're just going to get more of the same. But the increasing temperature and hostility that they exhibit towards him indicates that this man is completely alone in his suffering. It's not that suffering can be eliminated by friendship, but suffering can certainly be softened by empathetic friends. And that's the thing that Job lacks at this point. Eliphaz's second speech is very straightforward. It's the same, as I say, same old, same old. He starts by declaring that Job has no fear of God. This man who has lost everything, including his children and his own personal health. Eliphaz's words tell him that he has no fear of the Lord. He's acting disrespectfully for, uh, before God. Secondly, he declares that Job is full of his own wisdom. If you go back and read the earlier speeches of Job, I think uh, a fair verdict on those speeches would be that they are perfectly legitimate. Cries of anguish and questions that might arise from anybody suffering what Job is suffering. Look at the book of Psalms. Job does not step beyond the bounds that are set by the book of Psalms for suffering and pain. And then Eliphaz repeats his refrain that God is so pure and transcendent that even heavenly beings seem impure to him. There's an irony, isn't there, when uh, Eliphaz declares that because he asks Job, have you been in God's counsel? Do you know what's going on in God's heavenly counsel? The irony, of course, is that we as readers do know what's going on in God's counsel. Job doesn't know, neither does Eliphaz. And we know that Eliphaz is way off base at this point. Job's suffering is nothing to do with the intrinsic wickedness or otherwise of Job and everything to do with this cosmic battle, if you like, that is going on between God and Satan. Eliphaz makes himself a fool with his own words at that point. And then Eliphaz says the wicked have miserable lives because they know that judgment will fall. Really? That's a ridiculous statement. Most of the wicked in this world seem to live rather pleasant lives. Certainly that's my impression whenever I watch the Oscars. Well, I don't really watch the Oscars. When I catch the highlights of the Oscars on the day after on TV. The wicked in this world, they don't care about judgment. Maybe some of you have read, it's not one of Bunyan's greatest or best-known books, The Life and Death of Mr. Badman 
which is a story. It's a story of a, a, a two people having a conversation, and the one person is telling the other about the life and death of this man called Mr. Badman. The great thing about Bunyan books is you never have to worry about who the goodies and the baddies are. It's pretty obvious from the names they have. And one of the literary conceits that Bunyan uses in that work is that he constantly, the one, uh, the one person in the dialogue constantly makes reference to the terrible death that Badman dies. And you as the reader, as you read this, were expecting him to be sort of dragged into hell by a crowd of raging demons. And then at the end, when we're told how Mr. Badman died, we're told this, Mr. Badman died as meekly as a lamb, with no idea of the judgment that was to come. Eliphaz is completely wrong here. The wicked do not live their lives knowing that judgment will fall. If they knew that judgment would fall, they may not live their lives as wickedly as they do so. Job's response that we didn't have time to read is uh, that his friends... He says in uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 5, his friends who should comfort him have now emotionally abandoned him. Job, I think, is perfectly correct at that point. And then we see a sinister development. Job makes references to the fact that God has brought him to the edge of despair. Job is reaching the end of his tether, we might say, at this and he wonders where his hope lies. It's a perfectly legitimate response in many ways when you think about it. Job has fallen a long way. He's lost his family. He's lost his children physically, and his wife has abandoned him. Many commentators think that the children that Job has at the end of uh, the book of Job are with another wife on the grounds that the first wife appears to have just disappeared from the scene in a rather harsh way pretty early on. It's speculation, but it's plausible, one might say. He's lost his property. He's lost his health. He's full of fear and despair. And finally, he's lost his friends. He's desperately lonely at this point. There are various lessons that we can draw from this. One, of course, is this, that God can allow Christians to plunge into depths of suffering which they find unimaginable and overwhelming. We can tend to forget this. When you look at wars, I always thought wars were an interesting example. I remember years ago, I think it was during the Second Iraq War, fairly shortly after I'd arrived in America, we got into a discussion in class uh, about you know, whose side was God on in the war. And I pitched the question in a slightly different way. I said, you know, in Iraq there are probably many Christians. Some of them probably serve in the Iraqi army. If they're killed in conflict, does that mean that, that God doesn't love them? Or God is not on their side? Of course it doesn't. The book of Job indicates to us that Christians can suffer terribly. They can appear outwardly to be abandoned by God. That's something I think we tend to forget. Think about it. <clears throat> we all ultimately come to the grave. Ultimately, all of us are going to die. Does that mean that God is not on our side? There are certain strands of Christianity that seem to believe that if you're faithful, you'll never die. Uh, 
they tend on the whole to attract younger people, I think, as, uh, as disciples. Uh, it becomes less credible as life proceeds. But we're all going to die. Does that mean that God is not on our side at the moment of death? That's where I think the Christian difference comes in. Poor, uh, poor Job, of course, has a limited grasp of the way God is going to fulfill his promises to the human race. But the Christian difference by placing the incarnation of God at the very centre of its theology makes the crucial difference, I think. When you think about it, if we were to look at Christ's life through the lens that Eliphaz has presented here, or Christ was poor, in a few weeks' time, we'll have Christmas, one of my favorite times of the year. I always love uh, Christmas. But we'll be remembering, of course, that, that Jesus was born in a stranger's house. He wasn't born in a fancy hospital. He wasn't born in a mansion. He was born in a stranger's house. We know from the sacrifices offered in Luke chapter 2, pigeons and doves, that his parents were very poor. Because if you look at the book of Leviticus, it's supposed to be a lamb. But God in his grace says, if you're not wealthy enough to provide a lamb for a newborn, you can substitute pigeons or doves instead. So he was born to real poverty. We're told in Matthew chapter 8, he had nowhere to call home. When you think about Job and Christ, Christ too is abandoned by his friends, is he not? At the very moment when perhaps, humanly speaking, he needed friends more than at any other time. They ran away. More than that, Peter, one of his closest friends, denies him, not once, not twice, but three times. And then he dies a slow, agonizing and brutal death. The cry of dereliction. It's a difficult cry to parse, but if nothing else, it tells us about the acute loneliness that the humanity of Christ experienced at that particular moment in time. His suffering was real. Many years ago, Katrina and I went to uh, see a streetcar named Desire, which I think is one of the great, great American plays. We went to see it in London. We, we had a little bit of money and went down to London for the weekend. I think it was the first time we'd been away without the children. And we saw uh, Jessica Lang, the great American actress, uh, playing the lead in Streetcar Named Desire. It's a very powerful movie about the, really about a, a woman slowly falling to pieces. Uh, and it's powerful and emotional. And it's, as those of you know, you've been to the theatre, it's much more powerful to be there than to watch something on the screen. And yet I'm pretty confident that when the curtain went down for the final time that evening, uh, Miss Lang went back to her hotel room and had a glass of wine and it was as if nothing had happened. As powerful as it was, it would have been as if nothing had happened. Sometimes I think we can think of the gospel narratives as like that. They're powerful and moving. When we read about Jesus in Gethsemane, when we read about his sweat pouring like blood from him, when we read about an angel appearing to strengthen him, when we hear the cry of dereliction, that's very powerful and moving. But we mustn't forget it's also real. The purpose of those statements is not to move us. It's to reflect what really happened to the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby to move us. And then when you think of all this 
and reflect that he was God, his poverty and pain must all be set against the background of this voluntary humiliation, Philippians 2. This man who was utterly isolated and humiliated was also God. As far as Job has plunged, the Lord Jesus has plunged much further because he was God, not just mere man. How should that affect us? Well, I think one of the things it should do is give us huge confidence. Whatever Eliphaz tells us about God's transcendence, we know that God is not only transcendent, he has entered into human existence in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, he intercedes for us now at the right hand of the Father. His incarnate, historical, earthly ministry should give us confidence. Hebrews 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Eliphaz's God is so transcendent that he cannot empathize with Job. Not even Eliphaz can empathize with Job. He's so inhuman at this point. God himself has taken flesh. God himself has taken flesh. Christ's humanity should give us confidence. I'm struck by, I checked it during, the, I didn't sing in the last hymn because I suddenly had a verse come to mind I thought I need to mention in my sermon tonight. Whether it was the Holy Spirit or not, I don't know. It just came to mind. John fifteen fifteen. Jesus, just before he's about to be betrayed, turns to his disciples and says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. That's remarkable. That doesn't occur very often before that. The one big occurrence I could think of is in Exodus 33, verse 10, where Moses meets with God in the tabernacle. And we get that little glass where we're told that God would speak to Moses in the tabernacle as a man speaks to his friend. It is there in the Old Testament, but it's very exclusive. And it's only really hinted at. Here in the New Testament, Jesus turns to his disciples, looks them in the eye with his human eyes, and says to them, no longer do I call you servants. Now I call you friends. What does that mean for us? Put yourself in Job's position here, suffering like Job. Well, suffering poverty. Pretty much Christ's whole life was involved with poverty. Suffering the loss of a loved one. Christ lost Lazarus, didn't he? It's a powerful scene when Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb, but in some ways the most powerful part of that scene is when Jesus weeps outside of the tomb. Eliphaz doesn't appear to weep for Job. He berates him. Jesus stands outside of the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps tears. Think about facing hardship through obedience to God's will. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Suffering physical pain, Christ on the cross. Facing abandonment by friends and loneliness. Christ as he is betrayed, facing death. Christ on Calvary. We fear many things, and rightly so. But we should never fear to come to Christ 
as he intercedes with the Father on our behalf. The Christian life is one where we can expect suffering. Job demonstrates that. Job is not suffering for anything that he's done. We know that. Eliphaz doesn't. Eliphaz a little bit of slack. Eliphaz doesn't know what's really going on. But we know that suffering has not come into Job's life because he's ungodly. If anything, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? Satan has pointed to Job and said, yeah, his godliness is all self-interest. And so the Lord has allowed Satan to touch Job. Not to take his life, but to take everything else. In order to prove that Job is a godly man. Ironically, the problem Job faces is exactly the opposite of that which Eliphaz and his companions claim it to be. We are to expect suffering. Suffering is part of the calling of the church and of Christians because of our relationship to Christ. Paul makes that very clear in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about the suffering that he's gone through as an apostle. The background, of course, is that he's being criticized because his ministry is marked by suffering. And his critics are saying if he's faithful, his ministry shouldn't be so weak. It shouldn't be marked by all of the contradictions that are so evident in Paul's life. And Paul's response is effectively, well, not every Christian minister will suffer as I do. But the suffering I experience is entirely within the set of expectations that somebody being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ might expect to come into their lives. That which you see as evidence of my falsehood might very well be evidence of my fidelity. But we should also note here, and we shall see this again when we come to the end, we may never know why we suffer as we do. At the end of the book of Job, the reader still knows a whole lot more about what's gone on than Job does. I'm going to argue when we come to the end that God lifts the curtain a little bit. He gives Job a hint of what's gone on. But he doesn't tell him the whole story. We may never know why we suffer as we do. But one thing we can know, and it's this. Our suffering now is as nothing compared to the glory which is to come. I'll end by reading this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Job. We thank you for the witness of Job to his fidelity towards you. Though the book is dark and difficult at points, Lord, we thank you for the ways it sets the scene, as it were, for a clearer understanding of the New Testament and a clearer grasp of the great sacrifice that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, made on our behalf. We pray, O Lord, that once more you might seal that gospel upon our hearts. For We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.